And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, February 16th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, our federal employees headed for another big raise next year. Plus, artificial intelligence is starting to help one federal function that really, really needs it. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, too many Defense Department installations are in desperate need of repair. Some are simply falling apart. The Defense Department leadership wants to turn that situation around. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has more. And so there's a new strategy for this. And give us the scope of the problem, Anastasia. Yes, there is a new plan. It's called the Department of Defense Strategy for Resilient and Healthy Defense Communities that they told reporters about yesterday. And what it wants to get after is it wants to build infrastructure on their installations that put service members and their families at the forefront. It's in a way kind of a shift in how the Pentagon thinks about community infrastructure and what it will want to integrate into military construction moving forward. So the strategy will prioritize getting facilities into compliance with health and safety codes, making facilities more functional. As of right now, the estimated deferred maintenance backlog is over $100 billion, and that continues to accrue. Over 79% of installations were built before 1970. Also, over 30% of installations are 50 years old. On top of it, the weather events they continue to contribute to the issue. The Defense Department recognizes all these gaps in given the magnitude of the infrastructure funding deficit. They don't want to just invest more, but they want to invest better. Here's Brendan Owens, the Pentagon's Assistant Secretary of Defense for Energy, Installations and Environment. The challenge that we have, though, in front of us is significant. We have been Underinvesting in infrastructure for decades, we have been prioritizing mission readiness aspects and taking risk in the area of installations. And rather than try to milk on our way out of this particular problem, what this strategy represents is a whole of department, specifically through the EI&E lens, of how we can reorient our direction and our path forward to allow us to be able to understand that it's not about how much we build, but what we build and how we center people and centering the mission of what those people are trying to deliver in everything that we do. Therefore, they're talking about not just housing, although that's a big issue for the military, but also airplane hangars, shipyards. That's a big issue right there, the repair mm-hmm. in places where ships are docked and mm-hmm. so on, garages and the, the infrastructure that does support ultimately readiness. Correct. But at the same time, the way they're thinking about it is they're putting service members and their families at the forefront. So whenever they are making improvements, they're thinking about it from the standpoint of how will it improve service members' lives and their families' lives? 
All right. So tell us more about what the strategy proposes to do here then. A lot of things. And again, they're putting this human-centered requirements in the design and maintenance of infrastructure. So for example, they will integrate livability standards into their policies and the unified facilities criteria. The unified facilities criteria is the department's building code. It centers around things like indoor environmental quality and uh, quality of life. In the end, the idea is all of this will inform the department's infrastructure planning, design, and construction efforts. They will also be ensuring that installations have the digital infrastructure to have access to things like remote work and healthcare and educations. But again, barracks are top of mind. Here's Brendan Owens again. We are having a significant push around unaccompanied housing, and we are centering everything that we're doing in that space around making sure that we are understanding what soldiers, the sailors, the airmen, the Marines, the guardians need out of their out of their facilities in order to make sure that the version of themselves that shows up to work the next day after spending a night in a barracks or a dorms is the best version that we can for them to for them to execute their mission. What does this have to say about building resiliency? I guess severe weather, climate change, some of the you know Air Force installations are in low-lying areas of Florida, some they never did get back after hurricane damage 20 years ago. Tell us more about that aspect of it. Owen's team has made a lot of progress in that area. They use this climate assessment tool to assess climate risks, and all of that informs their decisions, it informs their investments. But again, the point of the strategy is whatever the challenges are, those are approached from this place of how will it improve service members' lives? And here's Brendan Owens again. This is really about a continuation of that work, but centered through the lens of how it impacts people. From that standpoint, all the things that we are doing for efficiency, for resilience, are going to be things that improve quality of life, right? So if we have the ability to ensure power during storms. That is something that is one less thing that a sailor who has to go to work, leave their family at home, don't have to worry about power outages in their family housing areas. It sounds to me like they're trying to reallocate the money they do have, but they're not anticipating some big bump in installation, maintenance, and repair dollars. Yeah, definitely. Owen's team, they've done a lot of things around, um, you know, building resiliency on installations, but now they're looking at this issue as a quality of life issue. All right. So, yes, service members won't feel too ready if they go home and there's no electricity or the house is falling apart. It's kind of hard to, you know, worry about the mission, I guess, when things are like that. What are their next steps? How are they going to implement this new strategy? This is just a starting point. The implementation plan is yet to come. It's, again, more about a shift in the mindset in terms of how they approach things, how they approach their their investments. But the cost of this undertaking will probably be in the tens of billions of dollars. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, artificial intelligence is starting to help one federal function that really, really needs it. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Few endeavors have engaged the world's best minds more than predicting the weather. 
Forecasting has improved since the days of sailing ships. Well, now artificial intelligence is coming to bear. My next guest says AI will reshape weather forecasting. Amy McGovern is head of the National Science Foundation's AI Institute for Research in the field of weather and climate. She joins me now. Dr. McGovern, good to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you have written extensively then on this topic of AI. It seems logical for AI to augment forecasting. But let me ask you this. What can AI bring to it that all of the supercomputing available to the energy department, to the commerce department, that they bring to bear now, the quadrillions of cycles a week that they run, what can AI do to enhance weather forecasting at this point? There's lots left to do. Weather forecasting is not a solved topic, as you probably know. But I would say that you know, your question asking, what can we do that supercomputing can't? AI is using a lot of that supercomputing power. So the current weather forecasting models are what they call numerical weather prediction. It's basically simulations of the laws of physics, and they break the atmosphere up into cubes, and they simulate each cube, and they're doing that inside the supercomputer and simulating how the cubes interact with each other. And the laws of physics are difficult to represent everything that's happening at every single level at every single scale, like the giant scales of the huge storms or the system like the jet stream that's moving across at a much larger scale, and then all the way down to something like a tornado that's really, really small. So those models are never going to get everything completely correct. And AI is helping to do a lot of that. So there's a variety of AI applications. One of them is that they're just completely replacing those models with AI. Others are that they're taking pieces of those and replacing some of those laws of physics and the simulations and the approximations that they're doing to the laws of physics with AI. And that can be faster. That's one of the big benefits is that it can be much, much faster than what's going on right now on those computers. So imagine you don't know exactly what's going to happen. So you have some uncertainty and you want to say, you know, do a couple of ensembles. Right now, those numerical weather prediction models are extremely expensive to do an ensemble. Once you've trained an AI model, you can do an ensemble very, very cheaply. So you could, in just a few seconds, get a 1,000 ensembles. By the way, is this being tried by NOAA and the National Weather Service and so on? NOAA is certainly actively jumping into the AI space. Those global weather models that I was talking about are primarily being developed by private industry right now inside, at least in the U.S. Outside the U.S., there's some government agencies that are being involved. But NOAA is jumping into that space. So in many ways, then, this is a way to predict chaos, and chaos is not really chaos. It's just that we don't know all the variables that make up to what looks like chaos. Is that a fair way to put it? I would agree with that, but I don't think that we're going to be solving it anytime soon yet either. Right? We're going to be improving our prediction of that chaos, but there's still going to be parts of it that we don't know how to do yet. Because the weather people say we're really good at the next 12 hours. We're darn good at the next 24 hours. The further out you get, then you're into the farmer's almanac territory, which is, you know, a guess and a wet finger in the wind. Well, they can do better than Farmer's Almanac, but Farmer's Almanac is primarily a climatology also, right? So keep in mind that that's what, as you get farther and farther out, climatology becomes really the, the better answer. It is harder. The, the chaos really does add up over time. Sure. But, you know, yeah, the AI models are, we're already doing really, really well at the, at the near term, like you brought up, but the AI models can help us improve that long-term forecast. The other thing AI models can do, um, I mentioned that, that the computation right now is really, really slow. And that's just because the way that it works, the laws of physics and everything on the parallel supercomputers are just not super fast. Imagine you're ingesting data in order to make your model run as quickly as possible with as recent of data as you can. It takes about, on today's supercomputers, it takes about a half an hour to give you the next forecast for the next few hours. AI could take that gap. And we have some work that shows that, that you could then in real time ingest the real time data and give you a, an improved forecast over that next half hour while the, the model's still running. 
We're speaking with Amy McGovern. She's leader of the National Science Foundation's Institute for Research on Trustworthy AI, Weather, Climate, and Coastal Oceanography. That takes in a lot that your, uh, that your unit covers. But it has a short name if you want to look us up on a website, by the way, AI2ES.org, with yes. the two being a number. Yeah, I've been there. It's pretty interesting. And we'll have that link at the bottom of the interview when we post this online. But I wanted to ask then, it seems like you're saying that AI can help in two ways. One, actually make better forecasts further out than are possible now, and also yes. maybe to do it cheaper just by condensing computing requirements. Yes, it can do it cheaper and faster. I would say that the training is still a lot of computation, but once you've got the trained model, it's much cheaper and much faster to be able to do those forecasts. Because faster in some ways is better because you can do things sooner, but with conventional techniques, even if you could run them faster, they wouldn't be any more accurate as you get further and further out. Correct. And also faster with the current computational limitations, it's you're running into a limit. The way that it's structured and the way that the parallelization is done, you can't really make it a whole lot faster right now. They're, they're pretty much up against the limits of the machine. Got it. So what does it take then for an organization to bring these kinds of algorithms into their workflows and to really make this part of their operations? They want to work with AI researchers. So we have a convergent team, and I'm using that word specifically. Convergent means that you're working across disciplines and you're working deeply on an interesting problem across those disciplines that all disciplines care about. This is a definition from NSF. And we have a team that is AI scientists working with atmospheric and ocean scientists and also working with social scientists, right? And so my answer to your question is it really takes an interdisciplinary team working together to identify the problem, really understand the needs of your end users, which is what we're doing, and then develop a solution for those end users and then make sure that it's working. That's why it takes all of those members of the team so that they understand the needs, they make sure that it's working. That part about being trustworthy, we're really trying to make sure that not only are we developing trustworthy AI, but we understand what it means to be trustworthy. Right. And one of the elements of trustworthiness is making sure that you use the best and most appropriate data for training whatever the application is you're doing. Is the danger of drift or hallucinations, whatever they call it, increasingly worse outcomes, is that possible when unit, say, like NOAA, is using weather data over and over again. That is to say, you're using data from a very narrow domain and within a well-known set of principles. It seems like a pretty safe way to train your AI. That's an interesting question. One of the things we're doing in our NAI2S is working on the development of responsible and ethical AI for weather and climate. And initially, people thought, well, you know, these issues about ethical AI don't apply to weather for exactly the reason you're talking about, right? The, the sensors are objective, and they're just giving us information that it's, it's objective. There's no bias to that information. But we've demonstrated that there's a variety of ways in which AI could go really wrong. And I think that's what you're asking about. I mean, you were asking specifically about drift. You could get just drift from having uncertainty in your initial data. I mean, nothing's actually perfect. But you can also make your AI go very, very wrong if there's just bias in your underlying training data, and you don't know about that. If you're not correcting for that bias, you could be just amplifying it over time, and that could also be a significant problem. Yeah, what's the type of bias that could be in weather data? Say it's gathered too much from the Atlantic and not enough from the Pacific, or this atmospheric height instead of that atmospheric height? Similar to that, I mean, there's laws of physics bias that you know, are something you can't really get around. So, you know, the satellites can only observe data as they go around and orbit things, so they can only give you so much data at certain intervals. There's also just a lack of data for the global south. 
the global north is pretty well instrumented. The United States, if you if you were to, I know you're doing this as a voice podcast, but imagine a, a map of all the instruments that are measuring everything. The United States is really well instrumented. Most of Europe is really well instrumented. Most of the rest of the world is not as well instrumented. Plus, if you just want to look at the ocean, the ocean's missing an awful lot of sensors. And that could be causing a lot of bias because you're making estimates of what's going on there, but you're not necessarily knowing what's going on. And yet there's the sense that the ocean is really the source of all of the weather stuff that happens in the first place. Yes, the ocean really needs a lot better sensing network. Got it. But, you know, this is not exactly a cheap solution, right? I can't just toss a million dollars at it and go, here, go fix the ocean. No, maybe the CubeSat fleet that could be launched cheaper and cheaper all the time could maybe cover the oceans with satellite data gathering that's not there now. There are a couple of companies that are working on exactly that. And by the way, what is the nature of the AI that is being used in weather? Is it a traditional algorithm that people have understood for a while? Is it the large language model style or what is it? That's an excellent question. It's a mixture of all of them. So there's certainly pieces that are traditional AI. That's what I would call them that are methods that have been around a very long time. But a lot of the more recent work is in deep learning, which is what you're talking about. So deep learning and then getting us into the generative AI models, the large language style, those are foundational and generative AI models. That's more of where those global weather models that I was talking about are going. But in the something like the hybrid models that I mentioned, where you take like a physics-based model and you replace pieces of the physics, those tend to be much smaller deep learning models or a traditional AI model that you've replaced pieces of the physics with. And how would a NOAA or some similar organization know when the AI is actually improving weather forecasting? How do you know? What metrics do you have to say, by golly, we are better at this now because of X, Y, Z? That's a really interesting question. Um, there's a lot of metrics that are known for specific problems. So if you want to study tornadoes, then you you know look at the specific metrics that everybody uses for tornadoes. You want to look at hurricanes, you do that. And so the, the metrics, I can't give you a metric now because there's the metrics are different for each problem. But the other answer to your question is there's test beds and NOAA has a variety of test beds. And those test beds are where they test out new technology, which is what you want, right? You don't want new technology to just be deployed instantly and potentially be broken. So they bring things into those test beds, they test them out, they give feedback, and then you do that until the people are happy with it. And the forecasters or whoever it is that's adopting the technology is happy with it. And then it gets transitioned over. Right. So you could have, say, a weather sensing station, a dozen of them, and say, well, this is what we say they're going to read out in 12 hours now. And then over a year, compare what you thought they would read in 12 hours and what they actually read out in 12 hours. You could plot improvement in that way. Fair? Yes. I mean, we're not generally just predicting whatever you're sensing at a station, but yes. I mean, there's a test bed in Norman called the hazardous weather test bed that happens in the spring. They focus on the huge tornado hail outbreaks that happen, and they do that for only six weeks, right? I like your idea of a year because getting experience over time gives you trust in the models, but it gives you a chance to really focus in, and they bring in a different set of forecasters every week. We have a model that's being tested in the Weather Prediction Center and Ocean Prediction Center, which is in D.C., that is identifying fronts cold fronts, warm fronts, et cetera, across the United States. And, you know, you said in the beginning something and then you corrected yourself. And I'm, I'm going to go with that one. We're not replacing those forecasters. There are forecasters right now that their job is literally to draw the fronts. We're trying to augment their data and trying to give them a faster way to do it. They're testing our methods right now, right? And then they give us feedback. Oh, we think that this is working really well here, but you're struggling over the Rockies, for example which is, by the way, a known problem. It's harder to identify that data over the Rockies because there's a lack of data over the Rockies, right? And so we get that feedback back. We try to fix the model. So that's just an example of how those test beds work. Well, we're glad you're on the job. Amy McGovern is the leader of the National Science Foundation's Institute for Research on Trustworthy AI in Weather, Climate, and Coastal Oceanography. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. 
And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the State Department's Acquisition Office undergoes a total makeover. But first, our federal employees headed for another big raise next year. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Fresh off a 5% pay raise, federal employees can look forward to some other enhancements coming their way, like the possibility of another hefty pay raise next year. For more on this and a few other matters, the Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, John Hatton. John, good to have you back. Thank you for having me. And let's talk about the FAIR Act, Federal Pay Rate Increase for 2025. This is kind of a perennial where they look for not double digits, but high single digits. Yeah. And so this is kind of the marker for members of Congress pushing for federal pay raises in this case. Congressman Jerry Connolly in the House and Senator Schatz in the Senate. And I would say this is more of a negotiating tool for them in terms of trying to put this marker down as you get into the appropriation season. So the federal pay raise is typically based off of the most recent change in the employment cost index for private sector wages and salaries. So if you're looking at that uh, that ended in 2023, it's 4.5%. That's typically reduced down by half a percent, down to four for that across-the-board pay increase. That's probably what you're going to expect to see in Biden's budget if they're looking to keep that same pay rate policy going forward. Then they include a certain amount in this case, in recent cases, 0.5% for locality pay. The FAIR Act says, let's go a little bit higher on locality pay. There's a large pay gap between federal employee pay and similar private sector jobs of 27%. So they're looking for a 3.4% increase in locality instead of that 0.5 percentage point increase. And locality is spreading like wildfire in some sense, too. Every year there are (laughs) new regions, and you wonder, how did that get to be a locality pay? It's harder to find places that aren't locality pay. Yeah, there's still this general rest of U.S. locality pay, which actually also increases from the base, you know, to the extent different geographic areas continue to be above that. You're going to have these new locality pay areas crop up. But, you know, certainly in large metropolitan areas, whether it's San Francisco or New York or in the D.C. area, people are paid more because the cost of living is higher and wages are higher. So it is good policy, I think, to adjust pay for you know what the market rate is in that area. And what is the latest thinking on whether federal employees are paid more or less than their counterparts in the private sector? I've always felt that, yes, some of them are underpaid. Some of them are actually better than the private sector. I don't think there's any single index that makes any sense because of the range of jobs involved. Yeah. What the federal government uses is the Federal Salary Council, and they try to match job to job, similar private sector jobs with the federal jobs and come up with some percentage difference, which is supposed to inform the changes in locality pay. And they found that taking that all in aggregate, there's a 27 percent difference where the private sector gets paid more than federal jobs. Now, that's not taking into account benefits. The Congressional Budget Office has looked at this before. They look at less of a job-to-job comparison and more of a human capital approach. So people with similar experience, people with similar educational backgrounds, and what are they getting paid? And they find kind of the most educated in the federal workforce are paid less than their private sector counterparts. 
But if you get down the lower educational levels are actually paid a little bit more when you're taking into account benefits and everything else. So depends on how you're analyzing it. It's complicated, but I think certainly there are plenty of cases where, you know, pay needs to go up to be competitive with the private sector in recruitment. And in the last couple of years, you've probably noticed, as we have, that lots of agencies are getting spot authority to offer extra pay, extra benefits, extra hiring eases for strategically important jobs they might need. It's fairly widespread, though. Yeah, I think that's one of the justifications for the FAIR Act or trying to try to close that locality pay gap is how much agencies are pushing for these special pay authorities so that they can actually recruit people because what is being provided under the basic or general schedule system isn't enough. So I don't know if the in any one year that locality pay increase is going to be 27%, but little inches upward would help prevent kind of these situations where agencies are really struggling to recruit people because their pay is low. Yeah, especially in an age when a pack of potato chips at the grocery store is five bucks. We're speaking with John Hatton, Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, NARF. And the OPM data breach, this was back in 2015, kids, but it still resonates, doesn't (laughs) it? And there is something that would extend protection for people's identities continuing. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so just as a reminder, people, OPM allowed their database to be breached and personally identifiable information was revealed. Now, Congress responded to that by providing identity theft protection up to $5 million in insurance, but only for like the next 10 years when they include it in an appropriations bill. So there's an effort to extend that. Information is out there. It hasn't been put back in the box. So people may still need that protection resulting from that breach. So Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton introduced a bill to extend it. I think this will probably get a little bit more attention as we get closer to that expiration date. But it's just a reminder to people that, yes, your data still may be out there. You still may need some of this protection. And it should be the obligation of the federal government, which gave it away, to provide you with that identity theft protection. The strange thing about that data is that it never did manifest itself in any obvious way. There wasn't some big, giant phishing attack that hit you know, a million federal employees or anything, no one really knew what happened to it or where it went or if it ever was used in some manner. Yeah, I think it's probably difficult to actually parse out whether if you do have some identity theft or fraud attack on you, if it came from that OPM data breach or a target breach or something else, there's data hacks all over the place. OPM is not the only place to be exposed in this realm. So I think the danger becomes when People can collect data from multiple sources and starts piecing together and piecing together, and they get a much clearer picture of you and your identity and kind of how you operate. You know, the one piece of data or the one attack may not be itself the most, but certainly is relevant in this case. Right. And the other thing about such data, it does go stale because people change jobs, they move and so forth. So you got to act quick on it, especially if you're going to launch a phishing attack based on what you know about True. that person and, at and that moment. True. And some of that's email addresses, but... I think in this case, you're talking about social security numbers, CSA numbers, just identities and addresses now if you've moved. And certainly there was concerns about people who were in intelligence agencies, people whose identities has been protected based on their top secret clearances or otherwise. And eventually you retire and then you worry about pharmacy benefits and Medicare (laughs) Part D, haven't had the pleasure of navigating those shoals yet, but it's complicated. But now there is a bipartisan bill that would help with Medicare Part D and drug costs. 
Yeah, the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability advanced a bill that applies to FEHB. Uh, that was their jurisdiction. This was also going through Energy and Commerce and Ways and Means has to take it up as well. And it's just an effort and it's nice to see some bipartisanship on this issue of drug pricing. And that would apply to federal retirees through FEHB. And now that more plans are integrating with Medicare Part D through that as well. And just prohibit some practices like the PBMs negotiate drug prices and they may get rebates, but they may not pass that rebate on to you as a consumer or the insurance companies that you're paying the premiums for for those claims. They may steer you to different pharmacies, so you can't go to the pharmacy you want. So some common sense legislation getting at some drug pricing and getting at some of these practices that reduce your choice. So it's good to see some bipartisanship even in the midst of a very partisan environment that some business can still get done and some improvements can still be made. Yeah, that idea of the pharmacy benefits manager, I guess it's had a good theory in that someone third party would argue with drug companies and get prices down, but it's kind of turned into a profit center almost where the savings don't necessarily get passed on to the yeah, actual buyer. They, right now they have an incentive to negotiate and get lower prices, but they don't have the incentive to necessarily pass that on to the consumer as thoroughly as they should or could. John Hatton is vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the State Department's Acquisition Office undergoes a total makeover. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. From new authorities to an updated organizational structure... The State Department's Acquisition Office is going to look much different in the next few years. State officials plan to reorganize acquisition around five lines of business. Diplomatic security, overseas buildings and construction, technology, cybersecurity and artificial intelligence, and professional services. Federal News Network's Jason Miller got details from state's senior procurement executive, Michael Darios. We're going to be moving out with uh, federally funded uh, research uh, development centers. Uh, so we're going to put, uh, we got approval uh, at literally, literally came today to, uh, to enter into a sponsor agreement, uh, sponsorship agreement so that we can uh, start establishing our own direct relationships with uh, FFRDCs. Why is this important and, and, and why is it innovative, right? Uh, it, it gives us, again, another tool in the toolbox that we just don't have today. Today, we have to go to other agencies and try to get access to their FFRDCs. Now, we'll be able to have our own suite of, uh, of, FF, of FFRDC contractors. It's little things like that, them hearing me talk about why we should have these capabilities and them seeing me kind of fight for these things, you know, and, and, and put the business case together and do the communications roadshow with folks that may not understand what they are. But, you know, once we once we teach them what the value proposition is, they get it and they're like, oh, that's a no brainer. We should do that. So it's these little things. Let's just dig a little into the FFRDC real quick, because I think sure. when you say before you had to go to other agencies, so maybe DOD to say, hey, could we work with you on this topical area through your FFRDC or how did it work? We just didn't have our own uh, IDIQ vehicle with uh, the MITRES or the LMIs or the RANDs of the world, right? There, there's several of them out there and they, and they provide great service uh, and in a very niche area. And the State Department's mission is evolving. So we are now doing things that the department wasn't asked to do 
you know, in years past. Uh, and I think that's that's the case across the board, frankly, uh, in, in all aspects of the mission. So the research aspect, uh, especially of R&D, really is something that we could benefit from. Uh, and we, we do use uh, FFRDCs, but the way it works is we have to go to, like you said, a DOD or somebody and, and see if the scope works. Number one, does, does, is it a fit? Can we use the vehicle? And then there's always the issue of sealing, right? So the other agency is going to, rightfully so, uh, protect the ceiling, on, uh, the ceiling on their vehicles. And when uh, other agencies are eating into that ceiling a little too much, they back off and say, hey, all right, now you're going to have to go somewhere else and get that support. And, and, you know, we could be right in the middle of something and frankly have been, uh, you know, uh, some, some very important engagements and had to start over. Uh, so uh, we want to try to alleviate that problem by having access to our own suite of vehicles. And from the OTA perspective, because again, something else that I know is, is gaining some popularity, is that a legislative request that state it has is. made? Yeah, this is our this is our second year uh, making the request. I keep saying I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the well until it's dry. You know, like I, I'm gonna keep asking for it. I, I think that I would love, frankly, just to see the the program expanded writ large. Um, I understand why it's not, but uh, I think that State Department has some very uh, unique needs that uh, we could benefit from from OTA authority. Uh, I think that in our diplomatic security portfolio, for example, right, the ability to accelerate development of, uh, of a particular product, uh, security-related product, uh, could absolutely help our mission set. And the ability to do that with a vendor that, you know, maybe doesn't know anything about federal procurement, frankly, may not even care about federal procurement, uh, but, you know, they'd be happy to, to develop something that they're, they're using, uh, using, you know, elsewhere. We would love to have that capability for the Department of State. So I'm going to keep, uh, I'm going to keep at it and uh, uh, see, see where it goes. But yeah, it's a ledge prop uh, process. Let's maybe go start with the acquisition planning. A lot of times people look at this and sure. call it, you know, PULT, right? Procurement, lead yeah. time. Where are you today with acquisition planning? Everything's different. I get it. But I'm sure you look at the numbers and what, what's the average and what do you hope to get it down to? Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be a bit of a cowboy here and say that uh, PULT is important, of course. But that's not really what we're trying to get after. We obviously have some established PULT times and uh, we'll be... We'll be also looking at what uh, comes out of OMB OFPP because they've been thinking about trying to develop a, a standard definition for PULT as well. PULT matters, but I think what matters more are some flagship efforts that we launched uh, this year, actually. So I'll talk, to, I'll talk about two of those. Uh, so for the first time ever, we have, we're calling an Acquisition Business Review Council, an EBRC. It's an opportunity for us to look at acquisition from both sides of the coin, and that's program management and procurement. Uh, so we really want to shore up both sides of, of the house there. And we're requiring folks at a particular dollar threshold to come forward and talk about their their program plans and the infrastructure that they've established, their budgeting, uh, you know, things like that. So how prepared are they for us to enter into a big contract for them uh, in support of their needs and, and how, how well positioned are they to manage that contract uh, if, we, if we move forward? And again, is there a good acquisition strategy attached to it? So uh, this EBRC is in a pilot phase right now. Uh, we've already had a couple of uh, programs go through it. 
successfully, I think. And uh, it's, it's sparked really good dialogue with a set of uh, executives that have shared equities and the department's acquisition program. So it's chaired by two key individuals. Uh, my boss, who is the assistant secretary for uh, administration and also the, the chief acquisition officer, uh, and then uh, our budget director, who is the uh, the appointed program management improvement officer. I sit on the board as well, and a, and a handful of others. Our CIO uh, sits on for IT investments. So, so the EBRC is a big one for us. It's it's a flagship uh, effort to really start to to think about how we do major acquisition differently. And then I'd say the other one, the the complement to that is uh, procurement planning conferences. So where the rubber hits the road at the tactical level, we uh, this past year uh, piloted with seven offices, this uh, kind of a, a formalized approach for engaging in planning for next year's procurement portfolio this year, right? So in the third quarter of this year, um, our head of contracting activity and her staff met with uh, the offices and the pilot, and they weren't talking about fiscal year 23 requirements. They were talking about now fiscal year 24 requirements. Uh, and so that's that's the cycle that we want to start driving the department towards, getting into this, this cycle of every third quarter, we're thinking about next next fiscal year while we're also trying to close out this this year's business. Those are the two big things that we're trying to do as it relates to uh, to planning. And then I'd say the major output from that would be better pulp time. The review board piece, you said you, it was just in the pilot stage. You've, you've, you said it's at a specific dollar threshold. What is the dollar threshold? And are you planning on other pilots this year? Or have you seen enough that, okay, let's, let's start beating up the implementation of this effort? The threshold is uh, $250 million and over, uh, so it's pretty high. We don't want to clog the system with everything. It's, it's risk-based, I would say, Jason. So at that dollar threshold, we're expecting program offices to you know, really kind of have a, a more formalized plan and approach for program management. And also the procurements at that level are usually for systems, uh, which are very complex and or uh, major services, again, very complex. Uh, we do we buy more services in the federal government these days than we do anything else. So so it's kind of aimed at, uh, at, at catching those things and not creating a bottleneck with the lower dollar things. So it's, it's really a risk-based approach. And uh, in terms of the pilot, uh, we'll continue uh, doing a couple more more. We've got um, a queue now set up for some fiscal year 24 uh, procurements that we're, uh, we're going to be reviewing. Uh, and then we'll be assessing uh, at the end of this. And, uh, you know, we're already starting to capture lessons learned from it, you know, and, and building a little repository for best practices. And uh, we'll assess, uh, we've got some, you know, some metrics and some benchmarks, and we'll assess how well we did in terms of uh, accelerating uh, those acquisition plans, which is really what it's designed to do. Michael Darios, the senior procurement executive at the State Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. And this program note, today is the last installment of our week-long special report highlighting the 85% of federal employees who work outside of the Washington, D.C. region, led by those 28 federal executive boards. Check it out at federalnewsnetwork.com. When the Avanti Virtual Private Network software vulnerability came to light in January, the Department of the Navy had an answer. It expanded its virtual desktop interface to 110,000 users from 25,000, all that in less than a week, moving them off the risky VPN product. 
For how it all went, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the Navy Department's Chief Information Officer, Jane Rathbun. For us, VDI was always part of our of our formula for how we're going to deliver capability to our on-prem and our remote workers. And so this was somewhat of a forcing function for us, uh, but really always, again, planned to move away from VPN dependency uh, and give more flexibility to our workforce uh, using these, we call it a Nautilus virtual desktop, because of its great flexibilities. Imagine you, because you had uh, several thousand, tens of thousands of people using it, you had good confidence that, okay, when you had to say, let's switch it and turn it on, you felt like you, there was an already good history of, okay, this works for a small number of people. What was, was there any moments where you said, oh no, will this work for a larger number of people? We always wondered what scaling would look like and whether or not there would be a stress uh, to the infrastructure in doing that. And got to say, we didn't miss a beat. And I, again, really proud of the team for being able to rally. And really, the other thing it did for us, it allowed us to strategically communicate, hey, remote workers, you have other options. Here they are. And people have just been amazed at how the capability works and how quick it is and that they really have not missed a beat. If folks are going, okay, I've heard of virtual desktop, but what's the difference between that and a VPN? VPN, you got to log on. Virtual desktop, you have to log on. VPN, you have to go through a, a process, two-factor, multi-factor, right, I'm right. sure. So, But what's the difference for the end user? The end user with a VPN is using their government-furnished equipment to access with VDI. They can really remote access in from their home computer. The beauty of the virtual desktop is it is virtual. It is protected, and uh, we have put protections in place for security purposes, so you can't download things on your personal device to do work, but you've got all the things that you would have available to you on your on your VPN connection, you will have available to you on the a virtual desktop to include answering emails, writing documents, sharing documents with your colleagues, all of that works. Is your goal to get rid of all VPNs, or is this for a certain sect of the Navy that you're saying, let's use VDI? Our two goals are optimal customer service and customer experience and operational resiliency. And so for me, operational resiliency is cybersecurity and redundant paths uh, so that you can be productive 24-7, 365 from anywhere in the world. And so our plan has always been to offer, as we learned about the capability when we moved to our Flank Speed platform, that we saw this as a good tool to meet our workforce needs where our workforce is. Uh, and so, yes, it was always planned for it to be part of our formula. Whether or not we abandon VPN completely is to be determined. Uh, and there are um, some limitations, not from the VDI perspective capability, but we have some applications, both ones we own and ones that we access through the, the DOD that are configured in a way that don't work well with the virtual desktop uh, environment and so changes would have to be made to be able to fully adopt uh, alternative paths away from VPNs. And we're moving to zero trust and so everything that we're doing, we don't have to be focused on the perimeter anymore. We can be focused on really at the device person data level and all of the capabilities that we're bringing to bear are zero trust aligned. I know it sounds to me like VDI has worked well for this uh, expansion, and, and there's maybe some other expansion coming. Let's shift over to cybersecurity, brought up zero trust. I want to start with the risk management framework. One of the comments you made was, we want to move away from the RMF, like a lot of folks have. What progress are you making? How are you moving away? What 
cyber readiness look like? Let's touch upon all those. Uh, Cyber ready is what we call our future state initiative that is earning the right to operate every day. You know, the RMF process is very compliance driven, lots of checklists. And what it gives you is a point in time uh, approval that your your system is good from a cybersecurity perspective. The day after you don't know what the uh, state of your system is because you're, if you're not doing the things that we want to see in Cyber Ready, like continuous monitoring, like adversarial threat assessment, like active risk management, and that the data is visible to our Cyber C2 operators, then we're not Cyber Ready. Those are the kind of the key components of where we're headed with Cyber Ready. We see Cyber Ready evolving away from, again, the checklist mentality, the compliance mentality to processes that are established at the enclave or platform layer level, understanding that not every platform needs the same types of cybersecurity tooling and, and, and approach, um, but we want to make sure that uh, in our cyber ready that from design all the way to operate uh, and, and sustain, um, that we have built cyber capabilities, cybersecurity capabilities in every phase of that. With any cyber security or really any IT change that you push, there's a big culture change. You try to get people to, to institutionalize, hey, we're no longer doing X and we're going to do Y instead. What have you done over the last six months, a year or so from the CIO's perspective? Because I know you were principal deputy and then and you moved up to the, the full CIO role to change that culture to, to institutionalize the cyber ready. Our approach has been um, we're not going to dictate process up front. We're going to work with our with our enclaves, our mission uh, delivers and design cyber-ready processes with those tenants, continuous monitoring, bringing the right telemetry, uh, adversarial th- threat assessment based on their enclave. And so we did a carrot and stick uh, approach, and that is you come and be a pilot in the cyber-ready uh, work at, that you will not have to do another ATO because what we expect is by the time we evolve with you in your journey, we have established that you have a cyber-ready process, and now you can just operate that way. I'm glad you brought up the pilots. I know you mentioned them at the FCOS, uh, the PEO, IWS, and the NAV Air. I think were two of them. What do the pilots look like? Walk me through what they're doing, and then how do you take what you've learned from them and then start to apply it more broadly? I imagine you want to expand Cyber Ready to to all the areas of, of the Navy. Yeah, Navy and Marine Corps. So the Navy and Marine Corps are active partners in our journey here. And uh, some folks have just come to us said, we want to be a Cyber Ready pilot. We're working with them. Some programs that are working on are proving out certain pieces of the puzzle, like what does continuous monitoring look like? Or how do we apply adversarial threat assessment? We have a team that's working on a risk management model. Tim, We call it TIMRA. That is a key piece of this. And that's actually already done. And people are beginning to adopt that even programs that are not in the cyber-ready pilots. But these cyber-ready pilots are helping us evolve to this state where we believe the answer, again, is going to be in the future at a system command, by an enclave. So if I'm nav air, air platforms are my enclave, they're going to tell us what cyber-ready the process looks like. We're going to evaluate that process along with our cyber C2 leadership and say, yep, you are cyber-ready. Anything you run through this meets the intent You'll get an authority to operate, and then if you, we're going to do spot checking. We're going to do, we're going to still do all the same things we do today. But as long as you are continuously running this process and being running a cyber currency, cyber ready approach, then you can move things through. 
are the couple pilots doing the same thing, or they're testing different parts of this concept of cyber ready? As you said, Navair has yeah. platforms. PEO, IWS may have more applications. Or yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we asked Navair is to think about it holistically. What what it would look like to give Navair a cyber ready designation? So you build your whole process again. These are the things we need to see, that you're producing the telemetry that the the cyber operators need, that you can assess threat, that you can give us a risk. I'm going to say risk score, but that's not really what we're after. We're we're building a set of criteria that says this, you know, that, that allows us to feel good about the level of risk you're accepting in your systems. And so they're looking end to end whole process. In PEOIWS, we've got three programs in various stages of the life cycle. One's a new start. One is doing a modernization, and one is just on their three-year cycle for ATO, and they're looking at how they can incorporate some of these cyber-ready approaches, getting continuous monitoring in there, producing the telemetry, and then evolving and learning, and then ultimately what we'll be doing for IWS, because combat weapon system is an enclave unto itself, they will go through the same approach that NAVAIR is going for their enclave and and get a cyber-ready designation for, for their process. Jane Rathbun, Chief Information Officer for the Navy Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.